Father, we thank you for this time that we have to come together to uh, sing our praises, uh, to worship you with our voices. I just pray that you would um, be with us now as we look into this text, give us wisdom and guidance, uh, help us to understand it and help us to apply it to our lives. And uh, we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, from Kurt's reading, uh, and if you looked at the notes, you would know that we're in Luke 10, 25 through 37, looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and it's, it's a very interesting parable because this might be um, one of the most well-known, um, one of the most popular parables there are. Um, even if you go out into the world, um, people might throw out the idea of the Good Samaritan, um, referencing, obviously, this parable. Um, the world, obviously, um, has little idea of what the Samaritan, or who the Samaritan is, or the parable, but uh, nevertheless, it is a very popular parable um, that we are learning about today. And the parable stems from a question, and that question can be found in verse 25. It says, And behold, and this is to get our attention, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law and how do you read it? So that is the first point, is how do you inherit eternal life? That is the main question being asked. Um, this is what the lawyer poses to Jesus. Um, how shall I inherit uh, eternal life? And this is not far off from later on in Luke. If you go to chapter 18 real quick, um, this is another familiar passage in which the rich young ruler asks the same thing. Good teacher, this is chapter 18, verse 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so this rich young ruler who also... Uh, remember, he says, I, uh, Jesus says to him, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And this man saw himself as a righteous person. Then Jesus says, sell all you have to distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And the thing I want to point out here mainly in looking at those two is there seems to be this nagging thought in their head. Um, both of them probably thought they were, definitely probably thought they were religious. Most of them probably considered themselves to be righteous to some degree or another. But there was this nagging thought in their head that maybe they weren't good enough. Um, and so the question is, how do I inherit eternal life? There was still that thought in their mind. There was a bit of unease despite their religious zeal for their religious zeal. And when you look at this eternal life, there's a lot of ideas that man has about what happens after we die. There's the annihilation, uh, annihilation reincarnation. Um, some people think it's just nothing, that we turn into dust. Um, it's just something that all people hopefully think about at some point in their time and at that point realize their inability um, to get to God on their own and seek Jesus. Um, 
And so this is what is being posed to Jesus at the time. And this question is what follows into the Good Samaritan uh, parable. And he asked this question in what many people think could be a negative way, right? Ultimately, he does it to put him to the test. That doesn't necessarily mean that he was doing this in a bad way, in a malignant way. Um, it could be that he was simply wondering what Jesus' answer to this um, possibly highly debated question would be. Um, in some form or another, I might uh, put Pastor Bill to the test and ask him a question, not in a negative way, but I want to see in which way Pastor Bill would answer a certain question that maybe I am questioning myself. And so, although it could be a malignant way, uh, it could also just be that he was curious about what Jesus, how Jesus would answer the question. And so that is, we have to remember in the back of our minds, the main question being asked. And then we have the search in the law, and Jesus says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so he points to the law, that is um, God's word. This is the Shema. This was put in the phylacteries. And this was prayed twice a day. This was something they were very familiar with. The passage is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4. And then there is an additional, love your neighbor as yourself, that's found in Leviticus 19, 18. And so they were very familiar with this. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look, what is in the law? How do you read it? How do you pray these things? And he tells them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Um, this is love God with all, the whole of your being, with everything. Love God with all of your heart. That is the core being of a person. It's the bowels of a person. And that is what it was referring to, their personal being. They are to love God with all of their heart. And with all of their soul, this is their emotions at all times, with all of it, all of their mind, their intellect completely focused on God, and all of their strength, um, the whole entirety of their being. And so that is what is required, right? Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself, selflessly. Uh, I like giving preferential treatment to others, um, above yourself, um, over yourself, as yourself. Um, all of us probably love ourselves quite a bit, whether we like to admit it or not. And you are to love other people, your neighbor, as you love yourself. And so that is the answer that the lawyer gives here. And Jesus said to him, verse 28, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, it's kind of interesting because Jesus also 
uh, answers this question. If you go to Mark 12, real quick. Mark 12, verse 28. Mark 12, 28. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. And so Jesus actually gives um, pretty much the same answer that the lawyer does in Luke chapter 10. And so naturally Jesus answers him, you have answered correctly. And he ends that with saying, do this and you will live. Perfect obedience would bring eternal life. Um, But that is not where this account ends. Because we are going to see how do you respond to eternal life. And it says in verse 29, But he, this is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, this is kind of interesting because... Up until uh, at 28, verse 28, uh, things could have taken two different turns. He could have seen his inability, and he could have looked at that and said, well, who or how could you ever love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength at all times completely? And when you, and not only that, but love your neighbor as yourself, um, he could have quickly realized that was in something that was not even capable of happening in his own life, that there would be a certain inability in acknowledging that he was incapable of such love for God at all times in his life. that no one at all times and always loves God with their entire being. So he could have seen his inability, but the problem is desiring to justify himself. Um, That is the thing. He wanted to justify his own life. And so he, where he should have seen inability, he saw capability. And notice how he in this passage, skips over the God part of Deuteronomy. Um, He doesn't ask about how do you love God or what does it mean to love God with all of your heart or what does it mean to love him with all of your soul. Um, He passes by what would be the more difficult, in my own estimation, of the verses and skips right to deflecting, really, the main answer on the topic at hand, and he deflects to, who is my neighbor? Um, He doesn't even ask, how do you uh, give preferential treatment, or how do you love a neighbor as yourself? He just says, who is my neighbor? 
And that is what leads into the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now again, we need to be wondering, in our own lives, do we see inability or do we see capability? Um, And this is something that Jesus talks about quite a few times. If you go to chapter 18 again in Luke, um, and you don't even have to turn there if you don't want to, but chapter 18, verse 9, another familiar passage. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterous, or even like tax collectors. I fast twice a day, a week. (laughs) I give tithes to all I get. Um, And so you see that person, right? The one who is righteous in his own eyes and treated others with contempt. He is the one who saw himself as capable. I do all these things, God. I thank you I am not like these other people. He was the one who, again, saw capability in his own eyes. And the other one who saw inability is in verse 13. But not... um, But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Um, One person looked at their life and they saw all the great things they were doing and saw themselves as capable on their own. And one of them saw all the problems in their life, all the sin in their life, and saw themselves as incapable on their own. And the point is you don't justify your way. And so we're going to take a look at the rest of this parable, and then we're going to go back through it in a little bit more depth um, after I get through this point. But we need to be careful not to justify our way, um, because it can't be done. And so let's read this. It says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Again, a deflection. He says, Jesus says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half naked. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound his wounds, uh, bound his wounds, and pouring oil on and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now, this is the important thing we need to pay attention. Which of these three do you think proved? to be the neighbor to the man who fell among robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, that's important. Which of them proved in their actions to be the neighbor? It's interesting because Jesus didn't really answer his question. He changes the question. He asks, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus turns that from being the object to the subject. Jesus doesn't illustrate who the neighbor is, but what the neighbor looks like. 
Um, it is not about who, but us, ourselves. Are we being neighbors to those around us? The lawyer was trying to make it philosophical and complicated, and Jesus made it very simple and applicable. You are to be the neighbor. And the Samaritan is that person, as we will see in a moment, who they really would have despised and hated. And so, in a way, Jesus is saying, even your enemies you are supposed to love and give, uh, be selfless towards, and love as yourself. The parable here showed the lawyer, in a very simple way, you don't love your neighbor as yourself. That is the real problem here. Um, Because you do not love the Samaritan, which we will get to, they would not have. And so, in a sense, he will not live. Uh, MacArthur puts it this way, the idea is that only by continuously, perfectly loving God Every na- and every neighbor on every occasion, even his worst enemy, could the scribe satisfy the first and second commandment and obtain eternal life. Um, the point is, he was seeing his capability, and Jesus was showing him his inability to do it on his own. And so that is what the thrust of the parable is focused on. But there is something else that we can learn from this as well, and that is how do you exemplify eternal life? Um, this parable is also a good example of Christian living, of self-sacrifice, of being selfless, um, to caring of, about others as much as you care about yourself. And so we're going to get a little more into this parable. There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The first point I want to bring out is there is always someone to serve. Now this is just says a man, some versions of the Bible say a Jewish man, that is kind of assumed. Um, and probably rightly, as Jesus was talking to Jews, They probably assumed he was talking about a Jew who fell among robbers. And this travel was from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is about 17 miles. It descends about 3,000 feet. It was narrow at certain points. There was caves and crevices where robbers would go and they would hang out and they would wait for people to come along and they would do this very thing and they would rob people. It was a rather dangerous road to walk on alone. And so this man's life, uh, he was, as it says, left half dead. Um, We would call this in critical condition, uh, in need of uh, emergent care. He was in a critical state. And We may not always see someone half dead on the side of the road. That probably won't happen to you, at least very often in your life. Um, But there is always someone who is in need, Um, someone who needs help, someone who you could help. I mean, we need to have um, be people who, like the Samaritan, are ready and willing to help in times of need. I mean, not just ready and willing to help when the moment arrives, but searching out those moments 
um, searching for ways in which we can help others' needs. And ultimately, certainly, helping them in their most critical need, which is their salvation. Um, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Ready to witness, to share the good news at a moment's notice, willing to drop everything for someone's eternal soul. So there is always someone to serve, and don't miss the opportunity to serve. Um, definitely, I put it in this, I tried to put it in this way, don't miss the opportunity to serve, because it is an opportunity. Um, don't think about service as a negative thing, something that you have to do, that you don't really want to do, but I'm going to do it anyways. Right? Sometimes we can do that. Um, it's an opportunity to serve, and it's something that we don't want to miss, like the priest or the Levite. And looking at them, right, it says, now by chance, just by ha happenstance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he literally passed by on the other side. He went out of his way to go out of the way of the man who was half dead. And this priest just represents the man who you would assume would help the person in need. Um, this was the maybe religious elite, if you could think. They were the inter, uh, well, I can't even say, intermediaries between the people of God, uh, to be the people and God. Um, they were the ones who served God with their, they would say, their whole life, right? Devoting themselves to be priests. They were from the lineage of Aaron. And again, it just serves as the person that they would expect, oh yes, the priest is going to help him out. But again, he doesn't. He passes by on the other side. Then you have the Levite. So likewise, a Levite, when he came and he saw him, both of them saw him and both of them go out of their way to go out of the way of that person in need. And again, the Levite is... Um, from the same lineage, a Levite, um, but they weren't the sons of Aaron. They were those who served in the temple in various capacities, helping out the priests. And again, they, you would assume that they would help them for sure. So what we need to do is see people's needs. They both saw the need. Both of them had an opportunity to meet that need. And both of them failed to do it. And again, they were called to this. These were the people who would have recited to love their neighbor as themselves. And as they were reciting that, they would be walking on by someone who needed their help. We ultimately are people called to good works, right? Because of, the, because of what Christ has done for us. We are to go and do likewise. Actually, I was thinking about this as we were studying Titus with the men. A little plug for them. If you are a man and you like to study the Word of God, which I hope you do, you can come to Wednesday night as well as women for, to study the Word of God. It's always good, and there's always something we get out of it. Um, but we talked about good works, and there's a lot that goes into Titus, if you want to turn there real quick. Um, that leads into these good works, um, how we 
have been saved and how we are called to do these things and how we are to live our lives. But here in Titus, there's a lot of points where good works are mentioned, and I just want to briefly go over them. If you go to chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God. Actually, that wasn't the first one. Well, we can look at this. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That wasn't supposed to be in my sermon, but technically that's kind of what the priests and Levites were like. But then you go to chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourselves in all respect to be a model of good works. So we are supposed to be models of good works. Then you go to chapter 2, verse 14, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we're supposed to be a model of good works. We're supposed to be zealous for good works. Then you go to chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers, authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for good works. So we're supposed to be a model. We're supposed to be zealous, and we're supposed to be ready for good works. Chapter 3, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So we're supposed to be careful to devote ourselves to them, um, being ready. And then finally, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. You might look out into this crowd today and hopefully see someone who you say, that person is just devoted, he's always ready, he's zealous for good works, and I'm just not like that. I just don't see the needs and I don't always meet the needs. Well, that's okay. We have to be careful to learn to devote ourselves to good works. It might be a process where you don't always see the need, you don't always meet the needs, but the more you do it, the better you get at it, the more God empowers you to be able to do those things Um, And the more we look like Christ. And so, again, there's more in Titus, definitely, um, that plays into those. But for today, I kind of have to summarize them. But I would encourage you to go read it and study it on your own. So, see people's needs and meet people's needs. Many excuses can be made for the priests and the Levite. Uh, They're going down, you could say, well, maybe they thought the robbers were still there. And so they didn't really want to stop because if they stop, maybe they will get robbed as well. Or you could say maybe they were just really, um, they, again, that they thought it was a trap. Maybe it was an unclean thing. And they were going from, so they didn't want to get unclean. Um, they were going from Jerusalem to Jericho. If they were going the opposite way, you might think that would be true. Um, as they were going towards the temple, not away from it. Or you could say they were going on this road, and they're saying, well, someone else will help them for sure. Or maybe they just saw that was a busy road and, again, assumed that. Or maybe you would just look at them and say, they looked at them and said, well, I'm just busy. We can give many excuses for why they couldn't help but we really shouldn't that's not the point of the parable the point is that they should have helped the person who was half dead on the side of the road and the thing is we can come up with many excuses for why we shouldn't help people as well 
And I think one of them, I call it the modern day killer of Christian service, is the words, I'm so busy. And <laughs> so a lot of people just gave me phases right there. So apparently I hit a note there. I hit it with my own self. This was a, um, one of those weeks where I had to keep reminding myself of what I was about to teach you today. I really do think that busyness can be um, killer for a Christian nowadays um, for many different reasons. I'm going to just give two of them. First one is you start to think you're too busy to help. Um, we say, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy. We make ourselves busy. And then we get to the point where we're so busy that we actually are too busy to help others. Um, and in that case, we become the priest and the Levite who sees needs of other people, and we walk on by, and we say, well, I'm so busy, I'm sure someone else will see that need in a little bit down the road. So that's the first one. We start to think we're too busy, and then we become too busy to help other people. And the other thing is, other people here, you're too busy for me. And I've seen this a lot, actually, in my own life, um, even just in the few short years I've been here, there is always busy times in the churches. Everyone knows those busy times. And at one point, I kept saying, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, whatever, I'm so busy. And then I started to notice that other people would say, well, I know you're busy, but could you help me? And that was basically them saying, I know you're too busy for me, but could you really help me because I need you to? Um, and that's a sad state for, I felt, myself to be in, that people felt like they couldn't come to me for help. And I just wonder how many times that happens in other people's lives as well. We need to make sure that other people don't hear, you're too busy for me. And so, we don't want to miss our opportunities to serve but we need to learn how to take those opportunities to serve, like the Samaritan. The light's hitting that clock in like the perfect way. That's why I keep like dodging this light. All right, so the Samaritan, looking at him, it says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him and bound his wounds and pouring on oil. Now this Samaritan is in the story, this parable, the least likely person you would expect to, if you're assuming it would a Jewish man, to help the man. Or at least in the eyes of the lawyer, this was the least, uh, the person who you would expect the least to help. And it says he was moved with compassion. This happens two other times in Scripture. It's with the master to the servant as he forgives his debt in Matthew 18, 27, and the father to the prodigal son, where the father is moved with compassion and he runs to him. See, this Samaritan proved that he loved his neighbor as himself, that he treated others with preferential treatment, um, as he would treat himself. Now, most people would not care for a man like that, but we would care for ourselves like that. Um, which of us, if we were half dead, wouldn't 
uh, in this time period, put oil on it and wine on it, and we'd go to the nearest inn, and we'd say, whatever we have to pay, I need to get better, I need to bind up my wounds, and whatever it takes. We would all do that for ourselves, but would we do that for a neighbor? Would we do that to someone who we saw as our enemy, at least theologically? We should always be those people who are moved into action. And there was an example I found of this. The young, a young preacher thrilled his congregation with his first sermon, a challenge to gird their loins for Christian service and living. Then, to their dismay, he preached the same sermon the following Sunday. When he confronted them with the same ringing message on the third Sunday, his flock felt something must be done. Don't you have more than just one sermon, blurted the spokesman to the pastor. Oh, yes, he said quietly. I have quite a number of them. But you haven't done anything about the first one yet. (laughs) Uh, We need to always remember that we are those people who need to do, right, good works. What we know about God leads us to live our life for God. And so it starts, uh, so we need to take those opportunities to serve. And again, these are the uh, theological enemies of Israel, the Samaritans. And we need to remember that in context. Um, They did not like the Samaritans, the Jewish people. Um, And the main reason for this is the place of worship. Um, The Jews saw the place of worship as being in Jerusalem, And the Samaritans saw it as being in Mount um, Gerizim. Um, That was their holy site. And actually, I was looking into this, and it still is today. Um, And there still is, I think, about 800 Samaritans who still worship there. And they even celebrate the Passover and sacrifice their um, lambs there today. It's kind of interesting. So they rejected the Samaritans, the temple in Jerusalem. So Jews saw that as forfeiting their right to be Jews. And you can see this in a lot of the, when you go through and they talk about the Samaritans, you can understand it a little bit more. Um, if you go to Luke 9, 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go towards Jerusalem. That's an important phrase. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set towards Jerusalem, which wasn't their holy site, and so therefore they rejected him. And you can see even in John with the woman at the well. This is John 4, chapter 4, verse 9. I'll just read it for you. You should be familiar with this passage. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a a woman of Samaria? Again, it shows that they had, she said, why from me? There's this fight that has been going on between us. And when you go to chapter, or verse 20, it gives you the reason, right? I'll start at 19. The woman said to him, sir, I've perceived that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship, right? That was the 
focus of their feud. We say we worship here, and you say you worship there. Um, and there was, this stems all the way back 750 years to the Babylonian captivity, where some of the Samaritans stayed. Um, and then when rebuilding the temple, um, the Jews kind of rejected them, and they got frustrated about that, so they ended up building another temple elsewhere. And so it went from there and kind of escalated, and it was still around in Jesus' day. So, it starts with the heart. How to take opportunities is like, Where am I at? It starts with the heart. He was moved with compassion, right? And then our heart moves us to act. And so he's moved compassion, and then he goes to him. He went to him, he bound him, pouring oil and wine. These were two ways to soothe and heal um, the wounds. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And he does this all night long, and you know that because it says the next day he took two denarii. And so he stayed with him all night long, and then he takes two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying... Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Um, the thing we need to understand is that he spends two things. His time, he spends time cleaning him, he spends time traveling with him, he spends all night with him, and then he spends his resources, his oil, his wine, his denarii, Binding up his wounds, soothing him, paying for him, all these different things. And it, I only point that out to show that our actions have a cost. Um, my mom always says, no good deed goes unpunished. Um, and sometimes it feels she is right. Um, I don't want to think of it as punishment, but there is a cost to our good deeds, right? For him, it was his time, his resources, and for us, it's many times going to be the same thing. I like what Taylor wrote. He said, some will give money to themselves off. Right, some will give money to buy themselves off from personal exertion. Others will give personal exertion to save their money. But in the instance before us, both were given. For what genuine neighbor love does it will do thoroughly. And so when you think about it, many times we say, well, I'll pay that person. And then in some ways you're saving yourself the time. Or other times you say, well, yeah, I'll go help that person so you can save yourself the money. Um, but rarely, I shouldn't say rarely, but often, many times we don't do both of them as he does in this parable. Service to others and service to God will always cost us something, but it is more costly not to care. The priest and the Levite lost opportunity to become better men, to become good stewards of the things God give, gave them, and instead they became bad examples of what not to do. The Samaritan, on the other hand, became a better man, more Christ-like, more sacrificial, more loving, more merciful, more impartial, and a better example of what it means to love God and to love their neighbor as themselves.
And so although it always costs something, it is more costly not to care. In conclusion, the question that we should ask at some point is, how do you inherit eternal life? And then more importantly, how do you respond to that? Do you see your capability where you should see your inability? And if you have that eternal life, how do you exemplify that eternal life to others? Um, How can we be more like the Samaritan in giving our time, giving our resources, seeing needs, and meeting needs? With that, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for um, this time that you've given us to look at a very popular parable, one that we are all probably very familiar with as we walked into these doors. And I just pray that we got today something out of it, a way in which we can know more about you, um, a way that we can love you more, that we can serve you better. I just pray that we would be those people who go out into the world um, because of what you did for us on the cross, that you displayed perfect love on the cross for us, and that we would go out and likewise and we would show other people uh, your love, and that we would see people's needs and that we would be willing to meet those needs. And we just thank you and praise you for everything you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.